So issues of sin meant very little to them. Since salvation depended whether one possessed this hidden spiritual knowledge, anything done in the body, whether sinful or morally upright, had no real significance for the Gnostic. Whether Gnosticism was the precise problem or not, it shouldn't be hard to make connections with tonight's passage and how it pertains to us. John is hitting on themes that plague us today, a correct understanding of sin and how it keeps us from right relationship with God. Within our churches, there are well-known pastors who barely mention sin, if at all. And there are whole groups of churches that celebrate and embrace conduct that Scripture describes as sinful. And then outside the church, there's the pressure of an unbelieving culture that maintains, despite what we see all around us, that we are all basically good. To even mention what God declares about sin is to be branded judgmental, unloving, and hypocritical. John's intention is to fight false teachings by giving his readers good doctrine, good theology at its most basic level. And here's what I mean by good theology at its most basic level. What's the definition of theology, anybody? It's the study of, of God. Okay, so tonight, John is going to have us focus on the most foundational questions in Christianity. How do we think about God? What is he like? And how do we relate to him? He's going to use, um, he's going to explain his points through the imagery of light and darkness. This specific imagery is used often in Scripture, and especially by John. In addition to what we just read, John's gospel contains 23 references to light as imagery, many of them uh, having been spoken by Jesus. Now, I want to share two family stories about actual darkness uh, to help illustrate why light and darkness is effective imagery in Scripture. The first concerns my son. He loved to fish and would go miles offshore with friends of ours. So they would spend hours um, getting offshore, driving during the day, and then at nighttime, get some sleep, wake up the next day, and begin fishing. On one of those trips, my son was awake at night, and everything was pitch black. And he sees two lights approaching the boat. One is a white light kind of on the surface of the water, and the other is a red light a little bit higher. But as the, the object gets closer, he can tell by the distance between the two lights that it's pretty big, and it is not veering off course towards them. And he's, he's starting to get a little concerned and starting to panic. Well, eventually, he, he realizes that the two lights were not connected at all. One was the, the red light was a plane that flew overhead, and the white light was just a boat in the distance. But in pitch black, he had no um, depth perception, and it looked like they were connected. Now, the next illustration involved my wife, and um, I did clear this with her before you hear it. My wife, 
who's a very intelligent woman, um, was also a runner. And since we had young children that she had to care for, she would get up really early in order to, to run, and it was still dark out. She would change into her jogging clothes in, in our little half-bath bathroom off our window, and outside that bathroom window, our neighbor had a pole light that gave just enough light through the bathroom window where she could get dressed in the darkness so she wouldn't have to turn on house lights and wake the sleeping family. So one winter morning, she's getting dressed, and she's just about finished getting dressed when everything goes black. And she looks into the bedroom and doesn't see the clock radio, the glow of, you know, of the time. She looks out the window, can't see any light in the, pole, in the pole light outside. And, of course, you know, what's going on? We lost power. How's this going to affect my day? She pretty quickly realized that she had put her hooded sweatshirt on backwards <laughs> and was staring into the hood. I did, like I said, clear that with her first. Okay. So how are these experiences different having happened at night in darkness than, than during the day? I mean, they wouldn't even be issues. She would get dressed and enjoy a jog. The, the guys would be out fishing with no sense of dread, right? But we realize that bad things can happen in the dark without light to guide us wasn't part of our story, but we also know that bad people come out at night where their deeds are hidden by the cover of darkness. In the dark, there's a distorted reality, you know, distorted sense of truth of what's really happening. There can even be kind of a sense of dread because things just don't seem right and maybe they seem a little dangerous even when they're not. All of these applications... Um, in the imagery of light and darkness are, are used in Scripture. And I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Like I said, there are references all over Scripture. Here are just a couple. In talking about good and evil, the prophet Isaiah declares, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Talking about truth, Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Or that sense of dread that I talked about, or having a right state of mind, Psalm 97 says, Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. So we're probably all familiar with this, this imagery. It exists today. Um, Encyclopedia.com says that, generally speaking, Light serves as a symbol of life, happiness, prosperity, and in a wider sense of perfect being. Darkness, on the other hand, is associated with chaos, death, and the underworld. But this is what you need to understand before we look at Scripture. We're comfortable using this imagery in stages, in different degrees. Like if I say, let's shed some light on this subject... You're saying, okay, we didn't have much understanding. Let's bring some more understanding to it. Or if I said, I'm in a dark place with my teenage child, you'll take that to mean it's kind of a sorrowful, difficult situation, but I see some light at the end of the tunnel. It means I can see that it's getting better, 
There are stages of where we are. The Bible does not use the imagery in that way. Okay, the Bible is presenting light and darkness as absolutes. John is trying to make really sharp contrasts. There is no continuum as, as he talks about light and darkness. There is either light or there's darkness. For example, Scripture de- describes the unbeliever being under judgment because the light, he's talking about Jesus, the light has come into the world, but they love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For the believer, on the other hand, it says that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So against this real brief background of the use of imagery, uh, use of light as imagery in Scripture, we'll take a look at the first two verses of our passage. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 5, John says that he is proclaiming the message that he has heard from him. From who? Who's he talking about? Right. The message he heard from Jesus. And we know that from, you know, the beginning of the book. And he's talking about that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, touched with our hands. He's referring to Jesus. So he is going to proclaim the message that he heard from him. Note that John has no interest in using his own reasoning to poke holes in the false claims of these teachers. There's no statement from him along the lines, I just feel like, or I think that, he's proclaiming the message that Jesus has told him. And that's an approach that should guide us. What does Scripture say about this situation? John is going to be making really strong statements that are contradicting what his readers are hearing from others. So he's establishing the authority of what he's telling them. In the beginning of the letter, John said, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. It is the message that John heard directly from Jesus that he is proclaiming to them. So he's saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you must think about God because this is what Jesus told us. I want you to also note in this opening verse 5 that John declares that God is light. Not that he has light. Not that he even has the most light. Rather, he is light with not a hint of darkness. These are the contrast, the great contrast that I'm talking about. Drawing on our imagery of light, our God is goodness. He is truth. It is his nature. There is not any hint of wrong, of falsehood, of imperfection. So any claim of spiritual knowledge that these men have, any claim of truth, must come from the source of all truth. Everyone who does not ground their life on the source of truth, therefore, has a darkened, distorted view of reality. 
Because God's nature is perfect light, and all that represents, verse 6 continues, that if we think we enjoy fellowship with God while we are walking in darkness, we lie. Again, this is the message heard directly from Jesus. Jesus said in, in John's gospel, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To follow Jesus, the light that has come into the world, is to now see God's goodness and truth and the joy that comes from following him. We no longer walk in darkness. Now, figuratively speaking, we won't stumble over a rock at night or fall into a darkened pit. We have light. Literally speaking, we won't live to satisfy our own fleshly desires above the interests of God and others. We have been given truth. We see that a full, well-lived life is to glorify our good, gracious creator. The Apostle Paul warned of being too closely aligned with unbelievers by asking this rhetorical question. What fellowship has light with darkness? He means the lives of those who live under God's truth cannot have a deep connection with those that do not. The values and goals and motivations are completely opposite. How much more obvious should it be that a perfectly good God, perfect light, cannot have fellowship with someone who walks in darkness? Now, um, in verse 6, that phrase, walking in darkness, does not refer to any individual slip or stumble, any instance of, of sin, because then John would be contradicting himself in the following verses where he says that we will sin. The word walk refers to a pattern of our lives, the path that we are on, the direction we are headed in, either in step with God or away from him. Romans uh, 6 talks about the believer walking in newness of life. We're on a different trajectory. To walk in darkness is to live for ourselves, to be controlled by selfish, sinful desires. This is the opposite of what God calls us to do, to live to bring him glory and to love others. Walking in darkness is the opposite of fellowship with God. As verse 6 is meant to warn men and women who think they're excused from walking in the light, in truth, obedience, and love, verse 7 is meant to encourage us that if we pursue our walk in the light, in truth and love and obedience, there is great hope for the sinner. There are two great truths expressed to the believer, a connection with the family of God and forgiveness of sin. John Stott summarizes this verse 7 by saying, what is clear is that if we walk in the light, God has made provision to cleanse us from whatever sin would otherwise mar our fellowship with him or each other. So there's an application, um, right, that 
when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And that should make sense if, if being given light separates us into just one of two groups that we would have fellowship with others that walk in the light. I experience this fellowship in many different groups here at, at Green Tree and have often thought about the other uh, leaders I worked with in one particular group, um, and that's when my wife and I worked with high school students. We, we did a lot of different events and met a couple times during the week. So we were together two or three times a week, and we spent a lot of time uh, together praying for the kids, praying for each other, and we became pretty close. Now, the other leaders um, were from different age groups, backgrounds, stages of life, different personalities, and it often occurred to me, as, especially as I think back, that I never would have developed a friendship with a number of those people outside of life in Christ. We just had different likes and dislikes, different patterns of life. Um, but when we look at others through the light of the gospel, every dividing wall is trivial. Republican or Democrat, racial or ethnic divide, social status. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't have strong opinions about issues of the day and how Scripture may or does speak to those issues. But those divides, if they are separating real fellowship with other believers, uh, especially to the point where we can't sit down and speak kindly and civilly to one another, then, then we better rethink, you know, uh, how we're dealing with those situations. The Bible declares that there are no cultural divides so extreme as to separate believers. Scripture says there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't take a lot of, of work. If, if you look up what the, the, the level of hatred was, for example, with Jew and Greek in the days the Bible was written, and see how sharp that divide was in the culture. Or, or consider neither slave nor free, the bitterness of, of, of the slave or the feeling of superiority of, of the, the free man, how that would have been dominant, or male or female. I mean, everyone's probably aware even in those countries today, after 2,000 years where Scripture was written, you know, the lesser value that is placed on women in those cultures. And yet, here, Scripture declares that those divisions mean nothing for those that are in Christ Jesus. Then the second benefit mentioned in this verse 7, we are cleansed. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sin has washed us clean in the eyes of God so that our sin is forgiven. Everyone who will humble themselves before God and seek to walk according to the truth of his word is cleansed. But John does not want his readers to be misled. He is not saying that by pursuing Jesus, we are cleansed in the sense that all sin is left behind. 
there is the possibility that his opponents would t- twist his words and see this and say, see, this is what we've been saying. What's done in the body has no meaning. You're forgiven. All sin is in the past. You don't even sin anymore. So then John makes sure he's clear by his verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For such people who claim to have no sin, they are in darkness. The implication of John's wording should be taken very seriously. In John's gospel, Jesus used the same phrase, the truth is not in him, to describe Satan. These false teachers claim to be enlightened, but John says that walking in light is not evidenced by denying that you sin, but by confessing and turning from it. It might sound like a contradiction initially. Wait a minute, I'm walking in the light, but I'm sinning and confessing it. It's not a contradiction, and and here's how the early church father, uh, Augustine, explained how we can be walking in the light at a moment when we need to confess our sin. He says that the person that confesses and condemns their sin is acting in concert with God because God condemns our sin. It's our proof of being linked with, of having fellowship with him, of hating what he hates. So when you struggle, if you sin, Don't hide from God in your guilt and despair. Go to him in prayer. Confess the sin. Ask for forgiveness for that sin and for strength and help when the next temptation arises. God will be pleased in that reaction and faithful and just to cleanse us anew. God uses our confession and repentance in his gracious work of conforming us to the image of his son. Verse 10 says then, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. We are guilty of blasphemy against the God whose scripture says cannot lie. God's word declares that all have sinned. The gospel of of Jesus is God's undeserved gift to to the believer. If the sacrifice of his beloved son was necessary to deal with our sin problem, how could anyone say, I have not sinned? So here, here's a summary of, of what we've talked about. These verses, um, chapter 1, 5 to, to verse 10. Pastor John Piper summarizes these verses like this. As usual, God's truth is a razor's edge between two errors. The first error is that your conduct before God does not matter at all. That's the first error that these false teachers were claiming. And John says, no, God is light, perfect in goodness and truth, completely pure and holy. A holy God and a disobedient, unrepentant sinner cannot enjoy fellowship together. It's like oil and water, natures that cannot mix. 
God's nature of perfect light cannot have fellowship with falsehood and sin. That's one error. The other error is to say, okay, I understand. God is, is, is perfect light, perfectly good. I need to clean myself up and perfectly follow all that God commands in order to have a right relationship with him. And to that, John again says, no, your effort, your striving will not lead to the righteousness that can earn God's favor because you will sin. On that razor's edge that John Piper describes, between two errors sits the gospel. A perfect God who cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness himself providing the only acceptable sacrifice to make payment for and cleanse us from our sin. So, um, I, I just happened to have been reading a little current event um, about a, a long-shot Democratic candidate for president. Um, and just a, a current example of how someone can fall into these errors. As a young woman, she fought depression for years. And she contended that, that the Bible's emphasis on sin was a wrong reading of Scripture that led people to depression and self-loathing. She's not a Christian, but she became a spiritual leader, a spiritual advisor to um, Oprah Winfrey. She wrote um, books about spirituality, and um, she even lectured at uh, various mainline churches in our country. Her message was, God loves you no matter what. Right? So she went to this error of thinking, I have to earn, I have to earn, I can't sin to be right with God. Okay, I, I'm an and only God live up to his standard. On. So, solution to keeping from the voice tells a story, uh, leader of the Methodist movement. He was approached by a woman who asked for prayer. She said, I am a great sinner. I'm a Christian, but I sometimes fail so dreadfully. And Wesley rep replied, yes, madam, I will pray for you, for truly you are a great sinner. And she answered, what do you mean? I've never done anything really wrong. So, you know, her view of sin was just a superficial Christianese, that's what we say, kind of understanding. She didn't hold in mind the great contrast of light and darkness, that God is perfect light, his character, the truth that he possesses. Sin, any sin, is evidence of our prior darkness and our prior separation from God, which would have been our eternal condition outside of the Lord's mercy. So have a correct view of sin, and then secondly, Allow that understanding of its severity to fill you with awe and thankfulness as you consider the good news of Jesus' sacrifice for you. A sacrifice when you were at your worst, when you gave him no consideration at all, maybe even mocked the idea of him. Rather than cover up that really bad news of sin, confess it, turn from it, and embrace the infinitely better news of the gospel of Jesus. Pastor uh, Tim Keller often said, 
The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. John begins chapter 2 of our section with a change of tone. He's no longer forcefully rebuking those that would bring wrong doctrine to the church. He's assuming the role of a spiritual father, urging his readers not to be persuaded by wrong doctrine. His aim is that they would not think casually of sin. But while John recognizes that we still do sin, he does not want the believer to see it as inevitable. He doesn't want us to throw up our hands and give up. His desire is not just that we would see the evil of walking in darkness, a pattern of sin in the unbeliever, but that the believer would resist each individual temptation to sin, recognizing the impact it has on our walk with God and fellow believers. So he writes these first two verses, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, John says, I write these things so you don't sin. What are these things? One thing is the central point that he made, that God is light. Since God is all truth, all goodness, no darkness at all, his children should also fight to avoid sin. Another one of these things that he writes to them refers to Jesus cleansing us by his blood and the faithfulness of God to forgive us. John would have us consider what great love the Father has shown us so that a great love for God would well up in us and we would have a desire to please him by avoiding sin. If we do sin, verse 1 says, we have an advocate who speaks in our defense. And the advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Describing him this way should give us great confidence. His character is righteous. Jesus will not tire of pleading our case. He will not become frustrated by our failures. He will advocate for us as one who loves us perfectly. This advocate is at the same time the propitiation for our sins. Other translations render propitiation as atoning sacrifice. The word literally means to appease. It's to turn away one's wrath by settling, satisfying, or repaying a debt. So the one who pleads our case perfectly before the Father has himself perfectly satisfied our debt. We can, we can rest assured that our eternity is secure in the hands of Jesus. 
Now, what does it mean in verse 2 where it says the perpetuation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world? What's the whole world that he's referring to? Some have taken this to mean that all people will have forgiveness of their sins because of Jesus. But that would prove the point that John is arguing against. If everyone's sin is forgiven, then going back to these false teachers, what difference does my conduct make? And John certainly is in the position of, of contradicting the point he's trying to make. It would also contradict John's own words elsewhere. For example, in, in uh, the Gospel of John, where John states, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how do we understand the meaning of Jesus um, being a, a payment for the sins of the whole world. James uh, Boyce points out that the word propitiation would call to mind the Jewish sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And particularly that offered on the Day of Atonement, one day a year to benefit the entire nation of Israel. So the contrast between where John says not only our sins but the whole world, that contrast is not the contrast between believers and unbelievers. Rather, the contrast is between Jewish background believers, including John, and people from every nation who had come to faith. John is saying it like, like this, that Jesus has followed the pattern of the Old Testament requirement of an atoning sacrifice. But his sacrifice applies not to just a single people group, but to all peoples who would believe. Is that, is that clear? Okay. In verse 3, John turns to the idea of knowing God. It's naturally connected. It's the same thing, you know, the concepts of walking in the light, of having fellowship with God that we saw in our previous verses. And if the Gnostics are the false teachers John is addressing, he's likely taking a dig at them, you know, saying this is how you can know God because they were, were proud. They boasted in having some hidden special spiritual knowledge. So he's saying this is how you can be sure that you know him. And this assurance of a right relationship with God is one of John's main points in the letter, maybe the main point. So throughout this letter, he lays out three tests for being a follower of Jesus, and Pastor Eric laid this out uh, last week in his overview of the letter. And this is the first test known to scholars as the moral test. You know him if you keep his commands. Knowing God is not simply the result of an intellectual exercise, using your mind to rightly think about God, um, as these false teachers claimed. And it's, it's also not 
the result of an experience. I felt something at a church service I went to years ago. John says that we can have assurance that we know him if we keep his commands. Truly knowing God occurs when he has changed both our mind to understand the truth of his word, including the truth of what it says about Jesus. He has changed our heart, our feelings, and our emotions so that we now reprioritize what we love and value. And those changes bring about a changed life, a life of obedience. John say, uh, Jesus says this directly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why is obedience a sign that we know him? Because it does not come naturally to us to love God, to consider the interests of others above our own. It's a sign of a supernatural work in us to move us against our natural inclinations. To use our symbols, obedience is a sign that God has taken us from the darkness that we previously loved into his kingdom of light. Verse 4 continues, Conversely, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Why does John feel the need to not only declare such a person a liar, but to add the truth is not in him? It may simply be repetition for the sake of emphasis, but John may also be continuing his attack on those false teachers who are coming into the church. Someone who says, I know him without keeping his commands is not only a liar on that specific point, but in a much broader sense, the truth isn't in him at all. Why receive teachings at all from someone like this? If someone says they know and love God, there should be a desire to please him. And God tells us what pleases him. Listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, don't boast about your wisdom or your strength or your wealth, but boast in this, that you understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight. If you truly know him, you will know what he is like, his character, his nature, and you will know that he delights in us reflecting his character. And then John ends this section with a summary statement. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we say we abide in him, if we say we know him, if we say we have fellowship with him, have a relationship 
with him, then we ought to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus, the only way possible to approach the God who is light. Jesus, our advocate and our acceptable sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. We do not obey commands for the sake of mere obedience, an exhausting life of rule following. We follow and are obedient to a person, an example set before us. We ought to walk and live as he lived. God is not a harsh taskmaster. He desires a real relationship where we have joy in the things that bring him joy and we despise the sin that he despises. God is not trying to get something from us. His desire is to give something to us. His perfect light, goodness, purity, truth, and a full, meaningful life. And that is only possible as we seek to walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, your word, which instructs us. I just pray that you would help each of us to hold a right uh, view of sin, but that we would not despair in it. It would prompt us to great joy and love for Jesus and a desire uh, to please you as we follow him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.